Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is a podcast for people who don't want to get diphtheria. My name is Karen Ernst. <laughs> That's everyone. That's everybody. That's right. My name is Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. <laughs> and I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm general pediatrician here in Des Moines, Iowa, Blank Children's Hospital. And it is National Infant Immunization Week, and we're doing a little special podcast about NIIW. We have as a guest the always wonderful Amy Pisani from Every Child by Two and Vaccinate Your Family. And we'll be talking to her all about some really deep history about NIIW and about vaccine advocacy and how it's changed in big ways and small ways over the last few decades so that sounds exciting doesn't it nathan yeah that's gonna be great all righty um just a little bit of housekeeping uh if you really love listening to our voices and you like podcasts in general there are two podcasts that you should go and download right now the first one is common sense pregnancy we did a little guest spot there and talked about vaccines and NIIW. And the other is the Parenthetical Science Podcast. We had them on a few weeks ago and they've returned the favor and they've put us on their show. So make sure to go check out those shows. They're both fantastic podcasts to listen to. Let's do our around the web. Do you want to go first, Nathan? Sure. I was going to highlight a article, an article in uh, Seattle Times that is written by uh, Arthur Kaplan and uh, Peter Hotez. So Arthur Kaplan is the, uh, the, the head of the medical ethics division at the School of Medicine in New York University. Uh, Peter Hotez is the head of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. I'm sure they both have many other uh, positions and titles that they have. But this article is really interesting to think about. Um, the title is uh, Anti-Vaccine Misinformation Denies Children's Rights. And let me read one excerpt from it. You can, you all at home can go Google that title and it won't be too hard to find in the Seattle Times. The part that I wanted to highlight was it, it kind of goes through at the beginning and, and, and talks about some of the outbreaks and such that we've seen, including the one in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, and, it, and one paragraph here says, how did we get into this quagmire? Faulty ethical thinking is to blame. We are elevating parents' rights to make misinformed decisions over the rights of children to get important vaccines. Infants and young children are blocked from receiving their routine childhood immunizations by parents who espouse an aberrant ideology of choice or are being duped by anti-vaccine groups. In so doing, they are violating children's rights to health, welfare, and equal opportunity. And it goes on from there. And I think that it is wonderful idea to frame this debate and discussion in terms of what a child's rights are. Um, we don't do that enough. So much of the narrative on this topic is parents' rights. It's like, you know, the, 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 the parents' rights to choose versus uh, what's best for their child. But really when we're talking about what's best for the child, we're talking about that child's rights. And somebody, you know, somebody has to stand up for those rights. Uh, when it's a situation where a child is being put at risk. Um, and and this article kind of goes through that quite a bit. It's worth reading. 
Absolutely. And I've always thought that we don't hit that point well enough that children have the right to to health. Children have the right to not get sick and children have the right to go to schools that that are safe. Um, And I think that all of these, you know, Parkland kids, you know, just last week we had the 19th anniversary of uh, Columbine and and the Parkland kids want to keep going talking about, you know, their rights in school, their right to be safe in school. I, I, I can only imagine that this this should be on the docket too for kids rights so that we shouldn't let a day go by when we're not saying kids deserve this they deserve no less than to be healthy so yeah it's absolutely the the right of the individual child but then also the right of kids in general to be able to learn in the safest environment possible which they're and it goes back to that the fact that to choose to you know this is it, obviously if you're not getting immunized because you don't have access that's one issue but if you know you have access to vaccines you're at the well child and the and the physician the provider is uh recommending a vaccine and you actively choose to not get the vaccine that's a choice that's a choice to deny a child uh the the health the benefits that that the vaccine provides for them and when parents are choosing that, that's an infringement of that kid's rights to be healthy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it gets really dangerous for that kid if they are attending a school where th- there isn't a community immunity threshold. And, and you know, I, sometimes I get into those intractable discussions on the Internet with people who, are, who say, I'm just not going to vaccinate my kids. And I say, well, would you please look up the vaccination rate for your child's school? And if it's below 90, 95% for the MMR, consider moving your child because your child isn't protected. And and really, you know, I'd like your child to be immunized. But if your child's not going to be immunized, I'd, I'd at least like your child to be protected somehow. Um, I, I don't have I've never had anyone say, yes, that's a great idea, Karen. I'm going to go do that. <laughs> I'll keep trying, though. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other thing this article does well is it frames it in terms of how um, so much of these rights, and we've said this so many times, yes, it's an individual parent's uh, decision, and and a parent themselves can be misled, but it's this, what this article calls the major instigators of vaccine refusal, basically talking about these websites um, and major voices that are, uh, again, quote from the article, running roughshod over these rights. Right. And, you know, I'm just going to take the opportunity right now because I think uh, based on some of the feedback we've gotten about this podcast, I think sometimes people get confused when we're talking about anti-vaxxers mm-hmm. versus when we're talking about parents who are vaccine hesitant. Um, that... You know, we certainly want to value children's rights, um, but I don't think you or I wants to do so in a way that causes distress to parents. Right. Uh, and I, I think that you and I both agree that the distress is caused by people we would refer to as anti-vaccine, people mm-hmm. who are 
you know, making money off of the fear of other parents, people who have huge platforms and are no longer risking their own children's well-being, but are now risking everyone else's uh, children's well-being. So just wanted to clarify that real quick. Yeah, it's always an interesting discussion to have over what is the definition of an anti-vaxxer. Interestingly enough, I've just recently, within the last few days, been in a Twitter discussion. I broke one of my cardinal rules and I started uh, tweeting with an anonymous Uh-oh. anti-vaxxer, <laughs> like, <laughs> which is one of like my arguing rules now. I'm not going to argue with people that are anonymous and I'm not going to argue with people that have like this history of like being harassing and abusive and whatnot but i stepped out of bounds there and i started responding to this person and so they were going on the dictionary definition of anti-vaxxer which was interesting because i didn't even realize that it was in the dictionary no i didn't either (laughs) and apparently you know the dictionary just kind of has a basic like anybody who refuses vaccines kind of definition that's not really the definition that and of course it depends on which dictionary you you look it up in but that's not really the kind of definition that i i want to go with and i don't feel like that's how it's commonly well and maybe commonly used that way but in in the circles you know in in those of us that are there uh very well educated about vaccines and and talking about um the forces that lead people to not immunize we really tended to think about you know vaccine hesitant versus anti-vaxxers and anti-vaxxers being a more severe form of refusal i like to go with the definition of number one somebody who on balance thinks that vaccines are more dangerous than beneficial and second part of that is somebody who uses that who, who tries to promote that misinformation in some sort of platform and and those two things i kind of need before i'm going to use that term Yeah, I give a talk to nursing students about vaccine hesitancy, um, and I have a big uh, continuum that I show them. And I say, all the way over here are people we call pro-vaccine. There's not a ton of people who are pro-vaccine who go out into the world and say, oh, you should vaccinate your child. Yeah. Down here, we have anti-vaccine. There's even fewer people down here. And then then it just sort of blends into the middle. You know, there's all these different gradations. You have people who are, you know, hesitant about vaccines, but do it anyway. People who are maybe less hesitant, but don't, you know, it's just, it's, it's it's a whole big thing. So I don't think we're ever talking about just one particular kind of person when we're talking about vaccine refusal or vaccine confidence or vaccine hesitancy or any vaccine related people mm-hmm. okay sh- should i got? should i do my around the yeah, web go now? to it well this one i actually have mixed feelings about Ooh. i know so you saw that at the beginning of the month there was a hearing about a bill to sort of tighten up the religious exemption for vaccines in new jersey um, and there was at this hearing, the, the bill passed through committee. And at this hearing, there were people who were upset. And I know um, with people in New Jersey, it's hard to imagine them getting <laughs> upset. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. But so they were uh, shouting the committee down as they were trying to leave. There yes. was one, one little kiddo giving like a double uh, you know, double uh, middle finger up to the committee, um, people chanting, you are going to hell, um, and all those things. And it made, I, I forget which of those like viral video things that it made, but on, it was uh, across social media, sort of like, look at these anti-vaccine parents being awful. Um, it prompted a number of 
a number of opinion pieces. Um, Anti-vaxxers are liberal New Jersey's science deniers is one from the villagegreennewjersey.com. So what if we're going to hell vaccinate your kids from nj.com? Uh, <laughs> all, all sorts of things. So here's, so I said I had mixed feelings about it because I think that got shared a lot. And I think it got shared in a way that was like, hey, look at these people. They're awful. Um, but there's a few things going on and that's that it's really hard to convince lawmakers to take up bills when we're sharing videos like that because um lawmakers believe it or not don't actually like being shouted down right i believe Um, yeah they're they're people they you know and a lot of times in those sessions um depending what time of the you know what kind of sessions schedule there is timeline and calendar they're going on like 12 hour days Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're really tired and then people are shouting them down Um, tired in the uh room there too yeah they they do a lot of work um and then on the other hand you know i kind of was looking at how afraid these people looked they just looked terrified that this was happening and i thought you know if i was convinced however incorrectly that there was this thing that my my child was being forced to take and it was going to cause damage and harm to my child. I don't know. I might shout, shout down a room of legislators too. So, so I had these kind of mixed feelings. But then at the end, I decided to share it anyhow. Yeah. Because it's informative. It is inf- you know, it's informative. I do want people to see that this really is how the conversation takes place, especially people who sort of go into a legislative arena never having really interacted with people who are anti-vaccine and perhaps just expect it to be easy because doesn't everyone vaccinate their child that it's it's extremely heated it is hard to be in those places and you you know you really do want to know what you're getting into but still do it anyway yeah i've seen this i i think that it's an interesting look at i mean i hear what you're saying in terms of if somebody was really truly believe, uh, you know, convinced that something was dangerous, but it's it, it's an still an interesting look in that I don't know. I've been to the Capitol and talked about things and wanted to lobby for certain bills and things that I thought were dangerous to kids or whatnot. Uh, that and I cannot imagine if my bill was you know if if the, if it went the other way me using those kinds of epithets yeah. and whatnot even though i know like children's health is on the line i'm not going up and like rushing i mean th- these people were like rushing the front of the room like going beyond i don't know that there's necessarily a barrier but like where the lawmakers were they were really getting threatening in appearance and not and what they were saying so don't I, I don't feel like I can really give them that same level of like oh they're really worried about their kids I do have mixed feelings about the bill I was trying to remember the details of it because I generally think that uh, this is just my personal opinion you kind of need to either have religious exemptions or not and when you start trying to have religious exemptions but tighten them in certain ways that make it more difficult for certain religious claims to get it or not um that i think is dicey uh but that doesn't still justify 
like the reaction of the people in the room. So I do think it's an interesting look when it gets shared. I hear what you're saying, but on the other hand, it kind of does expose, you know, the kinds of things that we see from the anti-vaccine movement um, where we've seen threats and um, vandalism and that kind of thing around the country by this very dedicated anti-vaccine base and it's not okay and i think shining a little sunshine on that um and letting people see it is of some benefit yeah you know that makes me think you hearing you talk makes me think of joshua coleman right who is in somehow connected to the vaxxed movie i don't know if he has a real job in it or what but you know he's done awful things i know last year at the March for Science, he followed uh, Senator Pan around carrying a sign with Senator Pan's face on it that said liar overlaid on it and yelling. And it went on. I mean, I watched the video of it last year. It went on for like half an hour. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, that doesn't make you look good. Do you not understand that other people are looking at you saying this isn't OK? That's not how we treat people we disagree with. Yeah. And there's other things going on. I, I've seen some articles about uh, people getting doxxed and stuff like that by the anti-vaccine movement. And yeah, so I, I think I think that needs to kind of get called out. And so I hear what you're saying about having mixed feelings, but it does. I do think that there's some some benefit to people seeing that and understanding really how extreme they can be. Right. Yeah, and I I don't want it to deter legislators from making attempts at passing legislation. I I do want them to know before they walk into a committee hearing room or, uh, you know, bring it to the floor. I do want them to know where the votes are, Mm -hmm. that you need to have that sewed up before the anti-vaxxers come in. Yeah, you really Um, do need to have a favorable political environment to do something like that. And you you don't want to face that face that kind of of blowback if there's really not much chance of anything happening which is not that i want to deter anybody really from trying to pass that kind of legislation but you know strategy is important (laughs) it is it is absolutely okay let's turn to niiw all right sounds good I'm going to make an inelegant pivot. Here we are, NIIW. This is Um, how you pivot. So the hashtag I should mention for NIIW is IVAX to protect with the number two, um, just like Prince, because it has been two years since we (laughs) lost him. Two years? Two years, yes. Oh, my gosh. I guess that's not burned into your heart as a, you know, you you probably don't remember where you were the moment you heard. Okay two years oh man yeah longer than seven hours and 13 days yeah. so um you can see your reference see i got that yeah uh but this year for niiw there's a big push to reach uh pregnant women i like to call them expectant parents because we also want to reach parents who are adopting children or fostering children before they have the children in their homes with them before they are a complete family. And so 
I want to challenge all of our listeners to think about someone they know who is either thinking about having a baby or having a baby soon or bringing a child in other ways into their home and to sit down and say, hey, vaccines are important to me. What are you, th- you know, what are you thinking about them and, and give them some good time to listen. Um, that's that's my thought. And I'll just say, let me back up because um, I, I just got to visit uh, one of the most beautiful babies in the whole world. That's uh, my stepson's and my daughter-in-law's new baby. He is six weeks old. And uh, when they were pregnant and expecting, I said to them, I, I literally don't have big opinions on parenting. You guys, mm-hmm. you guys do what's best. You love on that baby and mm-hmm. I'm all for it, except for vaccines. Right. If you don't vaccinate him, I'm going to hunt you down. <laughs> <laughs> is that a reference to Taken or is that just, okay, never mind. No, that wasn't a reference to anything. Um, but they assured me, they're like, oh, don't worry, we're vaccinating him. I said, damn skippy you are. <laughs> Uh, but I'm wondering, you know, other than threatening people, which mm-hmm. probably is the wrong way to have that conversation, how do you, what sorts of words do you say to people who are expecting and aren't actually in the in possession of their children yet, um, on the outside of the womb anyhow? Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you say to them? How do you introduce the, the topic of immunization? Hmm. Well, I can kind of speak from seeing parents for prenatal visits because it's fairly common for us to see um, expecting parents Um, and so for me like in that situation for me it's just mostly a matter of bringing up um, my philosophy toward them and then asking what they think and it's kind of an environment where people are expecting to be asked about that Um, it's hard to think about like cold asking somebody that you know that's going to be having a baby um so a lot of times what you can do i think in conversation is drop those little nuggets just like opportunities to where so like you might mention that you are immunized you might mention oh yeah i remember when i was pregnant oh i was in a horrible mood that day and then they had to give me my flu shot you know and then um, that's at least an opportunity for them to say, oh, yeah. First of all, recognize that you value that. Second of all, um, have that opportunity to say something about it and start that conversation if they want. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the other part about that, too, is to to really look for those opportunities to say, oh, yeah, it's I got, I got my flu shot. And the other thing I wish that people shared more in their families were disease stories. Because everybody, everybody's family has a disease story. My dad, my dad likes to tell me that he almost died from the measles. Um, I do think he's probably exaggerating on that because <laughs> he he didn't end up in the hospital, uh, but he he felt like he was ill enough to expire. He had he had, uh, he had man measles. He, yeah, he had he had, <laughs> he had five year old boy measles. Oh, yeah, poor well, kiddo. So. You know, he and he, you know, he probably made worse by the fact that he had to be in a dark room the whole time. Yeah. And he's five years old. Yeah. Um, you know, but we we all have people, especially if you look at your ancestry. I know I've got one like great 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 grandparent who lost six kids to various illnesses that we don't die from anymore. Uh, so I really wish that families, you know 
would pass on to their children before they even get married and start thinking about having kids that they passed on those stories that you know oh you should know this about your great great aunt Matilda who you know had diphtheria and died and the family was quarantined and it was awful and you know her little brother Billy like failed third grade and I don't know <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm not sure what else happens but you know my my great-grandmother had to quit school when she was 14 years old because her mother died in the Spanish flu epidemic and so she had to raise her eight younger brothers and sisters oh wow so these diseases had real consequences and we don't see them anymore. And so I wish when people were going into their childbearing years, you know, I'm so grateful that I had two children and I could stop at that because I was relatively assured that they would make it to adulthood. So th those are things that people didn't used to be assured of at all. And I wish that they had those stories from their own personal backgrounds to carry with them as they're expecting their own children. Yeah. You know, I have a, I do in my extended family have a polio survivor. And then I also have a number of stories just uh, from work. Um, and so most of my family, like when they, well, most of my extended family, when people are expecting, they kind of know, like, they're either going to avoid the topic or they're going to bring it up right away because they know that that's something that I like to talk about. So it, it's kind of nice uh, in some ways to make it known that you are pro vaccine in advance like on we've said this a million times but you know when those kinds of flags are dropped on facebook then people know that they that's something that you're interested in and they can talk to you about it and maybe they want your reassurance because they really you know are, are ready to you know they're going to vaccinate but they want to talk about that it really they're doing the right thing and sometimes maybe they're hesitant and they'll reach out to you because they know that you're somebody who they like assuming that you are a relative that they like, they may reach out to you and that's worth it. So, so do those things. Those are some things that you can do this week uh, so that we can keep infants immunized. Absolutely. So that's, that's our NIIW call out. And then when we come back after the break, we'll be talking to Amy Pisani. We are now joined by Amy Pisani. Amy is the executive director of Every Child by Two, which was one of the very first vaccine advocacy organizations on the ground and working and doing all of this good stuff to make sure that none of our kids get sick. So welcome, Amy. Thank you. So we brought Amy on because, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the vaccine hesitancy and the harm that you know, certain anti-vaccine leaders inflict on our communities. And we talk about legislation and we talk about social media. But there was a time when there were other bigger concerns that were going on as far as trying to get kids immunized. Uh, Amy, can you tell us, you know, before before social media and podcasts and all of this, what were some of the main concerns about vaccines and getting getting those vaccines to kids? Thanks, Karen. That's a really good question. And I actually went back and looked through our old files, which are actually in paper in my office, 25 years worth. 
And I was looking at the history of Every Child by Two, and, and, I, and I came to realize that, boy, things were really different back then. And I started in 1996 uh, with Every Child by Two, but we were founded in 91. And then, of course, back in the 70s, Mrs. Carter, a former first lady, um, well, she was the governor's wife in Georgia at the time, was working with Betty Bumpers in Arkansas, who was the governor's wife. And really, the goal was just to let people understand that they needed to vaccinate their children. They, they, we literally did not have an awareness in this country that children needed a certain number of vaccines by the time they turned two. And then later when Mrs. Carter came into the White House, Betty and her worked together and they helped to pass the school laws requiring kids to get vaccinated by age five in order to get into school. And that created an even bigger confusion with the community, which is why they then founded Every Child by Two in 91 and the whole goal was to say look your children need every vaccine by age two and that was the whole purpose so really it was much about awareness back then and and then we can talk a little bit about medical homes and how everything evolved yeah and so you know what why do you think it is that people were unaware of vaccines and I'm, I'm asking that because that might sound like an elementary question but I know all of us have seen those photos of people lined up around the block to get their polio vaccines uh, so how come that didn't translate into people realizing every time a vaccine came out that they should line up and get their kids vaccinated well it's I feel like I'm not that old, but then I look back on it and I think there wasn't an internet back then. We really didn't have the communication channels that we have now. So people just didn't have the, the, the tracking systems that really helped to implement getting every child vaccinated. And, you know, we didn't have registries back then, and that was a big initiative we can talk about, but um, there were no medical homes. People just sort of went to a doctor when they were sick or they, you know, they went from this doctor to that doctor. Their records didn't follow them. So there were just so many opportunities for children to get, you know, lost in the cracks of the healthcare system. So I don't think it was really the fault of people's not really recognizing the value of vaccines because, my goodness, um, there weren't that many vaccines back then, and everyone was clamoring for like vac for polio or um, for diphtheria vaccine. I mean, they'd already seen family members die of it. It just was a simple matter of of the healthcare system not really working for everyone. So what initiatives uh, or campaigns worked in the 90s, uh, kind of pre-internet days that, that, that improved immunizations at the time? Well, the Centers for Disease Control really, well, they started the National Immunization Program, which was a huge step. And I, I don't honestly remember the exact year of that, but that was sort of that, that time frame when they created their own um, uh, their own department. So that really elevated the importance of vaccines. The... Um, the S-CHIP program was created. I remember in 98, we actually traveled around the country just alerting parents to the fact that Medicaid was available for them. The Vaccines for Children program offered free vaccines if you couldn't afford them. That was really huge. I mean, you've seen the successes of that now. You know, we're talking about the, the life savings of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children because of that. But back then, no one was really aware of them. And so... You know, we were traveling the country just to educate parents about about that. Um, oh, another big thing that happened was the um, the start of the school-based health centers, and um, we again we worked really closely with the Bureau of Primary Health Care. Every Child by Two had a grant at the time, and um, we were affiliated with the American Nurses Association back then, and we worked to try to get all these new and up-and-coming school-based health centers to recognize the value of vaccinating children in those centers. 
Um, so looking back on it, you think, wow, all these things sort of fell into place. Um, and then registries also, we started working on registry development. Um, that was back in like 95, 96, when the Congress first allowed um, funding to create immunization registries, which are now called immunization information systems. Um, that was a huge step. I think then the Academy of Pediatrics, the American Nurses Association, and all these medical groups decided, oh, medical home, that's the answer. If we could just get kids in a medical home. And so, boy, that really changed things. With the registries, was that something, because that's uh, all done on a state level, correct? And so yes. was that something that, how were those, how, how, how easy was it to get states on board with that? And what was, what was it like trying to get, you know, 50 different registries started across the country? Yeah, that was definitely a frustration for Betty and Rosalind. They felt as though, my goodness, if Delta could create a computer system and track us everywhere we go, why can't we just have a national system? But no one wanted that. Congress did not want one system tracking all children. And so it was developed to be, it was approved to be a state-by-state -state, um, registry effort. I don't know, Nathan, It's it's been a challenge. It's been, you know, decades now and we have some really really terrific registries and they're working on so many of the technical issues i have huge kudos for um the folks who are working on that but it's been a really long road sure and even having the registry doesn't mean everybody participates in it and i imagine that's part of the efforts that are ongoing is because even now in Iowa, I love using our immunization registry system if somebody moves to my practice, but not everybody participates in it, and that's one of the, the kind of major weaknesses. You uh, mean not every provider uh, or every child? Yeah, not every, not every provider. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so there are still providers out there that I have to get their, like, faxed records over to find out, hand-scrawled. Hand <laughs> Uh, immunization records sometimes so Holy cow. no I hear you mm -hmm. I mean that was a big challenge just first of all just helping to create them we worked with all kids count at the time with Robert Wood Johnson to really move forward some of the um, the really novel and the really um, the, the, the the registry systems that they thought would be the best chance at working so they gave out grants and then they would give out supplemental grants uh, you know if that registry system looked like the technology was was um, promising so we would serve on the committees to choose which which companies would get the next round of grants. And then um, just, you know, like you said, letting every provider know what is the value of a registry. We we spent probably I mean, I look back at our files. We probably spent like 12 years as registries being our number one priority in our um, strategic plan, just educating people. And then one thing that we did, which we're really proud of. We brought together the medical directors from almost every major health plan in the country in, in Washington, D.C., through a grant that we had from CDC. And it was the first time they were ever even aware that these registries existed. And so we explained how they would help increase their HEDIS rates and, and all of these things. And from that, everything evolved. That's when it really became a real collaborative between the health plans, the the private registry companies, the states, and then, of course, the doctors kind of followed when they came to realize that how much it could help them. That's amazing. You know, I don't know if I've ever told you my why I love registries story, <laughs> but my uh, my stepson was born in 1994, um, and he got all of his vaccines while my husband was in the Marine Corps. 
And of course, you know, the number one thing that um, military is good at is losing your medical records. So when it came time to register him for kindergarten, we didn't have shots records for him. Uh, and he had to be revaccinated. And so um, I'm very happy for registries for my other two children who uh, I can just ask their doctor to pull down their vaccine information. And it's all there in, in Minnesota. It's called MIC. Uh in the mix system. So uh, thank you for doing that work, Amy. <laughs> I can't say it was a pleasure, but it, it was really <laughs> necessary. It was. The other thing that we did, you know, the one part that was a pleasure, I have to say, was traveling with Betty and Rosalind is like the funnest thing in the whole world. I, I miss those days so much. And we would go to governors um, everywhere. We would, you know, especially during NIW, we can tie that in later, but we would go and we would talk to the governors and say, look, this is something you should invest in. Or we would, we would talk to the um, senators. We spoke to every single secretary of health and human services since 1995, I think. And we explained to them the benefits of registries and that's really helped, you know, increase the support of them and ensure that the funding doesn't dry up because, you know, we've gone so far, we can't let them go now. Absolutely. So I just want to shift focus a little bit because I know the registries are really important. But I also know that you and lots of other people have been involved in access issues and in sort of health equity as far as making sure vaccines are available to everybody in every community. And and that's something we I know we really take for granted now mm-hmm. when most of our conversation is gobbled up by vaccine hesitancy. Uh even though there still remains some access issues, people don't realize what it what it what a problem access was. And I'm wondering if you can sort of educate us a little bit about what the issues were and how those were resolved. Sure. Um, you know, looking back, you know, when this all started with Betty and Rosalind, it was actually Betty who was approached by the Centers for Disease Control back in the 70s when she was the wife of the governor of Arkansas. Their rates were like in the 20th percentile. And they said, you need, you know, can you help us? You, you need to educate people in, in Arkansas about, about vaccines. And so she did. And she really pulled together the very first immunization coalition. She, she looked at every agency, every, any committee, anything that touched children. And she brought them together, um, the rural, you know, the rural health workers, everyone. And she brought them all together and said, look, we have an access issue. Our kids can't. We can't get the kids in to get them vaccinated. And within that, they raised their rates up into the 70th percentile within just like two years. And the CDC was just astounded. And they asked her if she would, you know, serve as a model. And that's when she would go to the governor's meetings and she would tell other governor's wives, hey, can you all we have to do is, you know, alert our families and and help improve all the places where they can access vaccines. And that's when Mrs. Carter got involved in Georgia. But, you know, then you like fast forward decades later, we would travel, you know, I traveled to probably, I don't know, 30 states with them, but they've been to every state many times. And I remember this one trip we took to Wyoming, which was amazing. And we're driving in the car for like an hour and 15 minutes to get to this um, school-based health center. Um, No, I'm sorry. It was a federally qualified health center. And Betty looked over at our host and she said, this is, you know, this is a really long drive. And she said, this is how long the children drive to school every day. Wow. There's no, talk mm. about access, right? Like then you have to drive them to a doctor as well. It just, it can't, it happened. That's when, you know, that we came to realize, wow, we literally have to 
immunize the kids where they are. If they're in the school systems and that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. Or, um, you know, if they're in, like we would go to New York, we went to the wonderful children's aid centers, um, aid society, sorry, they created these um, more school-based health centers in, you know, inner city, Brooklyn and et cetera. And again, they came to realize that parents have so many challenges and they have dual, you know, they're working two jobs, um, you know, they're working night shifts. You can't ask them to bring their kids for a vaccine appointment in the middle of the day. They'll, they'll lose their job. They'll literally not be able to feed their families. And, you know, through working with the Academy of Pediatrics and all the partners out there, Immunization Action Coalition and everyone, we started to really get doctors to understand you can't expect a nine to five job. You have to change your hours. You have to go where the kids are. So uh, what is the landscape now as far as access? Do we pretty much have everyone covered or are there places that still need some work? Oh, I think there's definitely places that still need work. You know, there's rural, rural health care is always going to be a problem. And I see that the, um, the, the disparities among racial disparities have been eliminated when it comes to children, which is just wonderful. I mean, it's outstanding. But now we're starting to see these socioeconomic disparities. So clearly there's still an issue with um, family income levels and their, and their ability to access vaccines. And so with all of that historical um, understanding about where we've been and where we've come with immunization, what do you think our number one issue that we have to overcome is as far as making sure more kids are getting vaccinated today? Disinformation. I mean, the Internet has been a blessing and it's been a curse. Uh, I can't believe that I remember when the internet was created and I remember when we created our first website <laughs> in like 96, we created, no, 98, we created our first website and our, our newsletter became electronic. And that's when we were finally able to reach our partners with an email newsletter. My God, it was like, like this novel idea. I had this intern that came from Prague who taught me what it was. And <laughs> so I think the internet's really, <laughs> it's like helped us, but it's really harmed us because now we're seeing, you know, we still have the problems with people who can't access vaccines or they're, you know, or they're, they're struggling to get their kids in for all their visits. And, you know, we're, we're missing them for the boosters. Um, but, you know, now we're also seeing women who are, you know, pregnant and they're making decisions for their children. Studies show that women decide in pregnancy by the third trimester what their views are on vaccines. And they very rarely change them. So I think we've got to really shift our focus towards the newer parent, you know, the upcoming parents, the teens of today, the millennials who will be vaccinating and, and, and really try to like immunize them against disinformation and mm-hmm. false science. So what kind of things does Every Child by Two try to do now for this new kind of field of barrier to getting people their vaccinations? Uh, well, uh, one thing we're doing is we work with the um, Women and Infants and Children program, and so those are the WIC, the WIC recipients. And um, crazy enough, almost 50% of our nation is on WIC, um, and that includes pregnant women and children up to age five. So we've had a long-term grant from the CDC um, to educate um, the, the WIC, WIC recipients. We actually educate WIC staff around the country. Um, so we, you know, try to get to those. That's like the socioeconomic, um, our answer to that, our little piece of the puzzle. Um, that's really kind of interesting because it was, I think, in 
2000, um, we encouraged Bill Clinton to sign a presidential memorandum that requires federal agencies that work with children to screen for vaccines. And WIC was the one who really stepped up to the plate. So working with AAP and WIC, um, we're just really happy with that. And they're still doing it. Like when you get your WIC, when you go in for your WIC coupons and you have to prove your eligibility, you have to bring your child's immunization schedule. And they can't decline you for your coupons for food. I mean, that's that's a standard, but at least it's like a way to do that. Right. And yes. then like, as far as like misinformation on the on the internet, um, of course, we have our Vaccinate Your Family Facebook page, which is, um, it's still the largest vaccine page. So we're pretty happy that it seems people seem interested in it. And, you know, they're all willingly a member of the page or a friend. So I think that's really a great opportunity. And then partnering with groups like Voices for Vaccines and Nurses Who Vax and, 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 and just people like that are out there just fighting the battle of misinformation daily on social media. I think that's really huge, Karen, don't you? I, I do. And I have to say, you know, I, I really love some of the ways that uh, Every Child by Two and Voices for Vaccines have been able to partner in the last year or two. We've been starting some exciting things, uh, especially locally with people. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting, too, because I don't know if you're seeing this, Amy, but it seems like we're moving a little bit from battling on the Internet and then taking it back to the streets, I like to say, or taking it back to people's um, in-person lives. Mm-hmm. I just read, um, someone sent me a, a link um, that the National Academy of Medicine is looking at helping to counter the mis-science or the anti-science rhetoric on, on the internet, and not just related to vaccines, but including vaccines. And they've gotten a grant from Google for that. And I'm, I want to wow. reach out to them because, yeah, wouldn't that be incredible if we had an army of scientists and medical professionals that we could maybe we could go to them and say, look, or here's something that we're concerned about. Can you comment on here? And I don't really know the strategy that they're planning, but I would love for us to give some input on that. Oh, yeah. You got to get hooked into that. <laughs> I like going to your Facebook page here. I'm seeing that you have, you're about 133 people shy of 200,000 likes. So if there's 133 listeners out there that haven't uh, <laughs> gone and liked Vaccinate Your Family, now is your chance. You could be the lucky pe- lucky person to put it over. Also, Karen and I, I think, started commenting on Vaccinate, it was, I think at the time it was called Vaccinate Your Baby, right? Yep, you, made yep. a, you made a title transition, a, a message transition. I think like when I started commenting there, it was like under 4,000 people. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. This was some time ago, but it was still like one of the largest pages and we would go on there and there was a small like task force of us that would uh, <laughs> make sure that the, the kind of the base is, is defended. That's right. No, and believe me, we, we to... remember that. We appreciated that. That discourse <laughs> was, you know, that was a battle back then. And if it weren't for you all, you know, we're such a small organization. We couldn't deal with it on our own. We still can't mm, sure, deal with yeah, it on our own. Sure, yeah, it's hard. You know, I have to tell you, Nathan, but just real quickly about the number. Yeah. Um, so the 200,000, we were just realizing yesterday with all the news about Facebook on, you know, with Jeff, with um, the Capitol Hill hearings, Facebook recently went in and did a really huge clean out of, um, of, of um, accounts that really weren't active anymore. And it made it, it really affected our numbers. So like, it'll be 200,000 again, probably within a day. And then they're cleaning <laughs> it back out again. And so like every week we're like, oh my God, we have to get to 250,000. Right, right. 
Okay, well, if you're not a bot and you're out there, go like, uh, <laughs> go like, vaccinate your family right away and get all your non-robotic friends to do so as can, well. Can bots listen to podcasts? Yeah, I'm sure that. Have you seen the Terminator and uh, oh, like true. War Games? Yeah, they're. <laughs> yeah. Skynet, you know, we just Skynet. want you to know we're. <laughs> My kids' we favorite movie. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, let's let's go ahead and uh, round this out with uh, talking to people about what is National Infant Immunization Week and why is it important and and all of that good stuff. Do you know when, when did when did National Infant Immunization Week start and why? I don't know when it started, but it's been really uh, it's been as long as I can recall. So I started in '96, really '98. I you know I helped move every child by two and actually found it, um, but. I remember it was happening back then, and we would do some really cool visits. I mean, back then it was a little bit different um, as far as I can recall. We would usually go with Walt Ornstein, who was the head of the nationalization program at the time, now called NCIRD. Um, we would go to the state with the lowest immunization rates, and there would be a big event, and we'd have all this press opportunities, and we would bring in the governor if they were willing, which they usually were the mayors, and just really raise the visibility level. I probably, sorry to say, sucked for the group that had the lowest rates because, you know, nobody wants to be at the bottom. But it did help them because CDC would stay with them, and so would we. We would do all kinds of efforts throughout the year. But CDC would also help them look at your, you know, what's your immunization plan? What's your action plan? Like, how can we help build some strategies that will increase your rates? And then, you know, usually would end up getting a lot of, you know, funding and support for the for the health department as well. So that was the way it was back then. It's really evolved now. I mean, now it's super coordinated. Um, they have kits that the states should be using or can use to give them ideas of how to raise awareness, how to get the media interested. Um, maybe you want to do like a small program just on whooping cough. They'll have a, they have a whole website um, on the CDC website for helping to develop that. What sorts of things happen during NIIW now? What, what things are you excited about for this NIIW? Well, I love the fact that they're, that they, that the CDC is really helping to nurture the programs, but they're hoping that it'll be a local level um, effort because the media is always, there's a week for everything now. So I don't think the media is that interested in the week. I think it's more about identifying your partners, creating a work plan that will, that will um, deal with like an issue, like figure out what your main priority is in your community, whether it's, you know, you're having an outbreak of measles or, or you want to help work with um, pregnant women to educate them in advance. And, they're just really hoping that you'll kind of tie onto one thing and then hopefully build interest among the media, but really towards a goal or maybe develop an immunization champion, um, you know, find somebody in your community that you can use as a spokesperson, things like that. And then groups like yours, like Voices for Vaccines and Every Child by Two, really just helping to promote the things that are happening on the local level. Like we're not putting a big announcement out this year. We don't have, we haven't, we have a big announcement to make, but it's happening in August about our vision and our and our vaccinate your family program. Um, but so in NIW, we're just going to really help promote what all of our partners are doing. That that is exciting, and now I'm interested in what you're doing in August. Really, June. It'll be June. So, um, but we'll promote it again and during August during National Immunization Awareness Month. I think 
everyone needs to really think about it is NIW and it's about the infant. We cannot protect an infant unless we're protecting the whole entire family and community. So our strategy has expanded. Like we said, we had, we were vaccinate your baby. Now we're vaccinate your family because, you know, first of all, we all have, you know, some people have infants in the house. They also have, um, you know, teens in the house. You have to make sure that we're protecting them from whooping cough. And so really think about NIW as a way of, it is about the infant, but you can't not protect them unless everybody works together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Amy. Um, where can people find you and Every Child by Two on social media or on the internet? So our social media handle really is Vaccinate Your Family. And we have a website, which is www.vaccinateyourfamily.org. We have our Facebook page. And of course, we have our blog, which is shotofprevention.com. So we are grateful for this episode's sponsor. We're really excited about that. This episode of Vax Talk is sponsored by the Meningitis B Action Project. Five years ago, Alicia Stillman of the Emily Stillman Foundation and Patty Wukovitz from the Kimberly Coffee Foundation each lost their young, healthy daughters too soon to a now vaccine-preventable disease, meningitis B, also known as MenB. Together, they have created the Meningitis B Action Project to remind parents and young adults that it takes two types of meningitis vaccines to be fully immunized against one of the most common types of bacterial meningitis. Learn more at meningitisbactionproject.org. I'm really uh, glad that they're doing that because there's, uh, you know, meningitis B, there's so much variability in terms of providers offering it, in terms of people knowing about it. And I think the more that we can get the awareness of it out there, uh, uh, the better. So please go visit. Absolutely. Learn learn all you can about Meningitis B. So I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Thank you at home for being a listener. And my name is Karen Ernst. I am, again, the Executive uh, Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find Voices for Vaccines at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, General Pediatrician in Des Moines. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at PedsGeekMD. You can also find my blog, PedsGeekMD.com. All right. Thank you. Happy NIIW, everyone. Have a good one. Thank you.